Today is our conclusion to the series in Philippians that we have been doing. So I, I looked online, I think it's 24, this will be the 25th installment in our series in Philippians. We've had six different preachers preach out of Philippians this year as we've gone through this. Six, six folks, including myself, so five have helped and, and preached at least one message in, in this series on Philippians. Um, I, I told our team this morning, I'm going to release my first book next year. See, I, I, I need to get this out because I've been talking about, I, I ha, and I have, I've written stuff, I've got stuff in files that ha, haven't been finished, completed, so I'm getting this out for the sake of accountability. Next year, I'm going to release a book on the book of Philippians. It's going to be a, a commentary on the entire book of Philippians, and it's going to be uh, subtitled, Overcoming Division in the Church. That's, that's going to be what this book is about. So I'm going to put these sermons together and hash them out, and then probably send them to somebody who actually writes proper English to correct all my grammatical mistakes and try to get that published early next year. That's my goal. So there's some putting it out there for accountability. We're going to get her done. Going to get her done. So Philippians chapter 4, our final installment in this series on Philippians. We're going to talk about flourishing generosity that abounds. Flourishing generosity abounds. And I, I could deep dive honestly into this passage and probably preach another 12 messages. But I think we're going to wrap it all up here today. All right, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, we're going to begin in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now, that now at last your care for me has flourished or revived. That your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that whatever state I am in, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's the bumper sticker for you. There's your bumper sticker verse. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. And by the way, I want to say that that bumper sticker uh, verse there has a context. And we love to quote this verse out of context. Like we, we talk about, I can do all things through Christ. And we're talking about like slam dunking a basketball. And you'll probably, I, this 47-year-old man probably never going to ever dunk a basketball again. So I can, I can stand on the basketball court and say I can do all things through Christ, but I probably will never dunk a basketball again. You know, we, we use this, I, I'm going to be a millionaire. I can do all things through Christ. I'm, I'm going to be president one day. I can do all things through Christ. We, we quote this all the time out of context. What, what's the context of this? He's, he's saying I've learned how to, how to be hungry and how to be full. I've learned how to abound and how to be abased. I can do all things. Whatever state that I am in, I can make it through by Christ who strengthens me. That's actually the proper context for that passage, that, that scripture. In verse 15, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of, my, of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even the Thess in, in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. We're done. Let's go home. We reached the end. Just kidding. 
I'm just kidding. So this is the end of the book. Let's, let's go back and just talk about a few things that we learned. Really, that what, what's at the heart of this book? I want to preach this message in the context of this book. So we, we looked at this, and we, we, uh, at the very onset of this uh, sermon series, we talked about three things that you can find in every single book of the Bible. There are also three things that you can find with the seven ch- churches in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There's a problem, there's a presentation of Jesus, and then there's a problem, a, a promise. There's a problem, a presentation of Jesus, and then there is a promise, right? Every book in the Bible is written to address a, a problem in the church. The, the messages to the churches, the seven churches, were messages to deal with problems in those churches. The Word of God comes to us to deal with the problems in our lives. And the way that we deal with that is through Jesus. That's why in every one of these books there is a presentation of Jesus, right? And then the promise, there's a promise in every book because if you overcome the problem, you'll inherit a promise, that's how it works. And that's, that's the pattern we see with those seven churches. There's a problem, the presentation of Jesus, and to those that overcome, here's the promise, right? So that pattern also can be applied to every single epistle in the New Testament. There's a problem that every one of those letters is written to address. There's a presentation of Jesus in every one of those letters, and there's a promise to those who overcome that problem in every single one of the books. The problem in the book of, of Philippians is there's division, it centers around two ladies in, 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 Ephesians, or in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. He, he addresses them, Yodi and Syntyche. We don't know if they're fighting against each other or if they are working together and causing some kind of a division in the church. We just know that they're at the center of this division. Okay? And the way that we are going to overcome division, the problem is division. The way that we overcome that is through the, the, the revelation of Jesus and the revelation in Philippians is found in chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself, became a servant, was obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death. And then God exalted him, right? So the way that we overcome division is by humbling ourselves and serving one another. That's the revelation. Be like Jesus. If we'll act like Jesus, we'll overcome any division in the church, in a family, in a work environment, wherever that's at. If you're you're experiencing uh, divisive behavior at work, become a servant and watch God help you to overcome that division. The way that we do it is like being Christ-like. That's the way that we overcome in any situation, in any circumstance. And the promise of this book is in this passage The promise of Philippians isn't in this passage that we just read. It's in the 19th verse. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. We've talked about, as we've gone through this book, we've talked about how division arises in the church because people have needs. People have, uh, it it might be a a financial need. It might, uh, you know, monetary. It could be an an inward need. Maybe they need affirmation or they need some kind of peace or something like that. And so they're trying to advance an agenda that they think is going to help to meet their need. And oftentimes we get in conflict because we're advancing agendas, trying to meet our needs And we're advancing agendas that are running contrary to the agenda that God set, going contrary to the will of God. So that's where conflict comes in, right? And so we, and and it happens. It happens in churches. It happens in families. We, We have to work to resolve those conflicts. We have to humble ourselves and work through conflict. It ought to be one of the marks of the church that we, yeah, we're going to have differences of opinions. We're going to be, uh, we're going to see where opportunities where people are striving and trying to advance different agendas, but we ought to be marked as the body of Christ, as a people who are willing to lay those agendas down and humble ourselves and figure out what, what, what's the great, what, what's the greater purpose here? What, what's God's will for us? What, what, what's best for this body? I'm trying to advance this thing. Is this what's really good for our church? And as we do that, as two parties, two factions lay those agendas down, humble themselves and come together and work through that, I believe we find the will of God. We find unity. And it all centers around motives. We're trying to advance a motive because we're trying to get a need met. That's why God says, hey, humble yourselves. Don't be, con- in, in this theme of this, this book, don't be concerned about your needs. Look out for the needs of others. We're going to look at that in just a second. Don't be, that, that's the whole theme of this book. The, the word servant is used multiple times. We've already looked at this, but it's used multiple times throughout this book. Humble yourself. Serve others. 
That's the way you're going to overcome division. Don't worry about your needs. Don't worry about your own well-being because my God will take care of your needs. That's the promise. And so that's, that's where we're at. We're at, in, in that, at that portion in this passage. That's exactly where we're at. Motives are important. Motives are important. The cause of all division is need. You say it another way. The, the cause of all division is greed. We're determined to have it our way, and that produces conflict. The cause of all division is greed. But unity comes through selflessness, giving away. Unity comes through selflessness. Division is caused by greed, but unity comes through selflessness. When we exalt our own need above that of others, it will always result in discord. When I prop up my need as the primary focus in any situation, in my family, in a work environment, wherever you're at, any kind of group that you're a part of, when you're propping up your need as the primary focus, it's going to cause discord within an organization, within a body, within a family. But when we abase ourselves, it will always bring unity. Paul is compelling the Philippians to abase themselves. And he's given himself, he's given Epaphroditus, he's given Jesus, he's given Timothy as examples. In, in this passage that we just read, he's talking about, hey, I've learned whatever state that I am in therewith to be content. And he talks about abasing himself. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to, to abound. Right? We need to learn to abase ourselves. This, this term means to make low, to assign a lower rank, to have a modest opinion of oneself, to behave in an unassuming manner, to be devoid of all haughtiness. We need to learn to abase ourselves, to lower ourselves. That's the theme of this book, and really, honestly, it, it's, it's a great theme of all Scripture humbling ourselves, right? Peter, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Abase yourself. Uh, lower yourself, right? Paul, in Ephesians, he says that we should walk worthy of our calling. How do we do that? With all lowliness. God's called us with a high calling. We learn to walk low, right? With kindness, with long-suffering for one another. So it's a theme of Scripture. We need to learn to abase ourselves, to put ourselves down, the, the thing that is really interesting to me in this book is that there are problems in the Philippian church. But the apostle, uh, in this letter, he, he honors them. He speaks well of them. He calls them saints. He says, these ladies who have caused this division, who are at the center of this fraction, uh, he, he says, their names, their sisters who have labored with us, and their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Right? Despite the fact that they're at the center of this issue, he is honoring them. He's speaking well of them. He, he's encouraging them. And he does this all throughout this, this book. He encourages and speaks well. And by, by the way, I just want to stop and say, this, this book is, is by theologians called the most joyful book in the Bible. It's a book of rejoicing. Right? It's, it's considered to be the most joyful book. We looked at that over the last couple weeks right? About, about having joy, about rejoicing. And again, I say rejoice, right? Joying in Jesus. It's one of the most joyful books in the Bible, and it was written by a man who was in prison, under house arrest, to a people who were in poverty. We're going to see this in just a second. They're in poverty and distress, probably persecution, and yet it is known as the most joyful book in the Bible. Think about that. Think about that. So he, he's speaking well of them. And in this passage that we just read, the, the, the point of this whole passage that we just read is he is pointing out the generosity of the Philippians. He said, you were, you, you were the ones, way back in the beginning, the first time I came to you, you gave. And he said, there were, you, you, we were looking for more opportunities to give, but there just weren't opportunities. But now that I'm under house arrest, you have again, once again, shown generosity to me. I've received the things that Epaph you've, you've give, gave, you have given to Epaphroditus. He's delivered those things to me. And once again, your generosity is on display. He's praising them. 
He's, he's giving them this correction, this change, this rebuke, telling them, hey, come on, get together. Let's get on the same page. Let's stop the infighting. Let Yodi and Syntyche be of the same mind. Stop that discord. So there's correction of a, an apostle, of a father, and he does it. And my youth pastor taught me that, the, the, the love sandwich. Anybody all ever heard that? Two slices of bread that are love and the meat of discipline in the middle. Right? You love them, you correct them, and you love them again. My youth pastor taught me that's the love sandwich. So Paul sandwiches all the correction and love and encouragement and honor. Think about that. It's a great model for us as leaders, as parents. How do we correct our kids? How do we correct in the body of Christ with love, with honor, and a little meat, right, that brings the correction. But he's, he's talking about their generosity. He talks in verse 10, he says they've, they've flourished. In verse 11, he says, uh, he says, I'm not speaking about my need. I, I've learned that whatever state that I'm in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. And in verse 17, he says, uh, not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. We're going to look at that. Indeed, I, I've, I've all in abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent, uh, f- f- uh, the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing. He talks about this gift that they gave to him, and, and he says it's, it's a sweet-smelling aroma and an acceptable sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. Anytime we give, any gift, I think that that, that could be said. Anything we give towards the kingdom of God, whether you're giving in the church, you're giving to a missionary, you're giving to someone in need, I, I, I believe it's that. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. It's acceptable. It's an acceptable sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. Every time we give, that's what our gifts are. Every single time. So let's, let's dive into to verse 17. I want to talk about the uh, abounding fruit. In verse 10, he says, he says your, your care for me has flourished again or revived and then down in the 17, he says, it's, it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Right? See, Paul understands that, and, and I'm going to use this throughout this sermon, so, so look at this. There, there is this thing of give and take. There is this river. There is reciprocity in God's economy, giving and taking. And he's saying, I, I want, it's, I'm, I'm not so much after your gift as I want you to be receivers of the good things of God. He said, I, I'm excited about your giving because I know that there's going to be fruit on your account. Let me ask you, is there fruit on your account? Have you sown towards the kingdom of God? Because when we do, I believe we do exactly what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Uh, through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, any time you give into the kingdom of God, you're storing up treasure in heaven. And it's not money. It's not money. Listen, when you get to heaven, your money is going to do you no good. If you, if you think you're saving up your money in gold for when you get to heaven, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because number one, we've all heard this, but there, you've never seen a, a hearse with a U-Haul. You can't take any of that stuff with you, right? You're, you're not going to take it with you. And by the way, the things that we consider wealth here on earth, they use to pave the streets up there. You know what? The, the, the treasures that are stored up in heaven are they are the souls saved through the generosity of the saints. Amen? They are the souls saved through the generosity of saints. That's the treasure that's stored up in heaven. And so Paul's saying, I'm rejoicing because the work that I did when I left you when I was in Thessalonica and beyond, they, they funded from the beginning up to this point, they had been involved in funding Paul's ministry, his travel. And Paul was a man that didn't really try to get a whole lot uh, for his own gain. 
He actually worked. He was a, he's known to be a tent maker. He worked to provide for his own ministry. At one point, he says, I've addicted myself to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he took a tent making job to pay for his addiction. Ministry. But there were times, and you have to understand, this is, Paul's at a point in his life right here where he cannot work. He's under house arrest. And by, by law, he had to pay rent where he was staying. He was required by the Roman law to pay for, for that rent, that, that house where he was staying, under house arrest. And the Philippians were paying his rent. That's what history tells us about this. Right? And, and by the way, Paul, Paul reached more people than most Christians when, from prison than most, Christians ever, most free Christians ever reach. Amen. You think about that. The effort of Paul to, to continue to, to be a father to the church, to send these letters out while he's under house arrest. And, and we, we see in the book of Acts, the, the, the conclusion of the book of Acts, Paul's still under house arrest, but the Bible says that men were coming to him, and he was preaching the gospel to them, and no one hindered him. Paul was more effective than 95% of Christians in house arrest. You think about that. But his ministry was supported by the Philippians, and he says, because of this, you have fruit that abounds to your account. There's a credit in heaven by your name. There are going to be souls in heaven because you supported this ministry. That's what Paul is saying to them. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Let's talk for just a second about the generosity of this Philippian church. We, we need to understand this about the, the, the Philippian church. These are not wealthy people, right? They're, they're average Joes. It wasn't a bunch of billionaires. It wasn't a bunch of billionaires. These were regular folk. In fact, the Bible gives us indication that they were poor, and they were under great distress. We're going to read that. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. These were poor people. They were under distress, and yet they continued to support Paul's ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, we, want, uh, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Philippi is in Macedonia. Philippi is one of these churches that he's talking about here. And he says, I want you to take notice of the grace of God upon the churches of Macedonia. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, mixed together with the deep poverty, abounded in the riches of their liberality. They're poor, and they're distressed, but Paul says this, this great joy that they have was mixed with this distress and it abounded to their generosity. Doesn't it make you think of the last two messages we just preached about, hey, be anxious for nothing, but rejoice and have, make, make prayer with thanksgiving, right? The peace of God will guard your heart. The God of peace will be with you, Right? So I, I, I believe what Paul had taught this church took root and had great effect because we see them in distress. We see them in times when they should have anxiety and fear and hold on to every penny that they've got because they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. But instead, in the midst of poverty and distress, the Bible says their joy abounded to the riches of their liberality. It's a powerful, powerful picture. He says, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. They gave beyond their ability. Right? So that, that's what a generous spirit does. A generous spirit will always give beyond its ability. And by the way, every one of us, God's will and God's purpose for us is for us to be generous. Do you know how I know that? It's because it's who he is. How many of you realize that God is good, that he is generous? For God so loved the world that he gave 
right? Every good and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. He is a good God. He is a generous God. He has lavished on us. He has poured out on us. The Bible is replete with scriptures that talk about how much God has given to us. He's generous. Amen? And if you have been born again, you have been regened. And the nature and life of God is on the inside of us. And that whatever we see that God looks like is what we are supposed to be look like. We have been recreated in his image. We, have, we are new creations made to be, if you want a, a great example of what we're supposed to look like, look at Jesus. Amen? When we're born again, we are born to look like Jesus. That's why Paul would write in Ephesians that we are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. God's will, God's intent for us is that we would look like Jesus. That we, and and, and this is just one facet of it, that we would, as he is, be generous people. God desires for all of us to be generous. And let me just put some of you at ease. I'm not just talking about the offering plate on Sunday morning. You need to be generous everywhere that you go. You should be known as a generous person in your family, known as a generous person at your workplace, in your neighborhood. Everywhere that you go, you should be known as a generous person. It takes faith. And it, cho- it takes choosing to joy in Jesus. It's only, I believe this. It's only if you choose to joy in Jesus that you will be a generous person when you're in poverty and distress. When you have faith, when you're joying in Jesus and you have faith that indeed my God is going to supply every need that I have according to his riches and glory, you will be generous regardless of how much money you have. Generosity is not a matter of position. Generosity is not a matter of your bank account. Generosity is not how much you get paid. Generosity has nothing to do with how much you have stored up. Generosity has nothing to do with any title, any position that you have. Generosity is not a matter of position. It is a matter of disposition. Some of the poorest folks that I've ever met have been some of the most generous people that I've ever met. Think about the widow and her two mites. By the way, Jesus was at the temple as people came to give, and he was watching, observing their giving. Wouldn't that make you nervous? The pastor was up here, hey, let's bring the plates up here, and I'm going to watch y'all give today and make us all nervous. But that's what Jesus was doing. He was watching what they were giving. And all these people, they were bringing up large sums. Here's a check for 1000 Here's a check for 10000 Here's a check for whatever. And Jesus was not impressed by any of it. And this little lady brings up two pennies and puts them in the plate. And Jesus stops his disciples and says, hey, look, all of these folks came up here with big checks, depositing big amounts of money, but this woman right here outgave them all because she has given out of her living. She gave all that she had. See, generosity is not a... It's not a matter of position. It is a matter of disposition. This, this widow had a generous disposition. It was her nature. It was her character, and she gave from that. Do you think if you made about 18 or 20 grand a year, you could give $200,000? It doesn't sound feasible. But that is exactly what Albert Lexon did. Albert, Albert Lexon polished shoes at the, the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh for 32 years. For 32 years. And from what he made polishing shoes, he gave $200,000. 30% of what he made over the 32-year period, he gave to the hospital. Albert Lexon has a generous disposition. The generous people give more than just things. They give of themselves. They give everything that they are. That's a truly generous disposition. Okay, so let's talk about this. We, we talked about it earlier, this thing of reciprocity. I'm standing in a stream over here. Over here, the flow is stopped, but right here, there's a stream. God wants us to live in the stream. 
A big part of the reason God wants us to be generous is because he wants us in the stream. He wants us to experience reciprocity. He wants us to experience the give and take of the kingdom. I have a reciprocal saw at home. Reciprocal means the blade goes back and forth. You pull the trigger and the blade goes back and forth. Right? So that's the idea of reciprocity. There, there's a give and take. There's a back and forth. In God's economy, there is a reciprocity. We need to understand that. So giving is not about legalism. It's about life. It's about freedom. That's a reality. People get bound up. When you start talking about tithe, which, by the way, God has not done away with. A guy from here in our church talked about how frustrating it is. He was talking to me about it this week. He's got, he's got people on his, his news feed that spend their entire energy towards trying to prove that we don't need to tithe anymore. What a horrible existence. Seriously, miserable. That's got to be a miserable way to live. Tithing does not bind me one bit. It frees me. It liberates me. And it helps me to experience the flow of God. Giving is liberating. It is the, it, you can be depressed and find some way to meet somebody's need, and it will bring joy to your life. That's what I've discovered. Right? That's a reality. Build some principles of generosity into your life. I'll just give you one example. Rachel and I have a principle. Every time we go out with a missionary, we refuse to let them pay for anything. Build something like that into your life. And there's times when we can't afford to pay for their meal when we do it anyway. And you know what? As you can see, I have never missed a meal in my life. My bills have all gotten paid. God has always taken care of us. We have time and time again given more than we should, given till it hurts, and God takes care of us. There's a flow. There's a reciprocity. Listen to uh, Proverbs eleven twenty four. This is in the Amplified. It says, there are, there are those who generously scatter abroad and yet increase more. And there are those who withhold more than is fitting or what is justly due, but it results only in want. Solomon's saying, this doesn't make sense. There are people that give and give and give, and yet they end up with more. And then there are people that are hoarding and holding on to everything that they can, and they are in lack. What is it? Solomon's talking about this thing of reciprocity, this system, and God's economy that's established. Whether we like it or not, it's the way that it works. Sowing and reaping is a biblical principle, Old Testament, New Testament, however you want to look at that. It's a real principle. And it really works. It does. One thing that Paul's saying here is that the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy seems to get smaller and smaller. That's reality. And we're not even talking about money. There are people that have piles of money, and they have this little bitty small world they live in. They're dominated by greed. See, the blessing of God has really nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with riches. It has nothing to do with your bank account. It's life. Amen. The blessings of God are way bigger than monetary things. I, heard, I love that it's saying. I don't know who, where it came, originates, but somebody said some people are, are, are so poor, all they have is money. There's somebody that understands that concept. That, that blessing has absolutely nothing to do with wealth. These, these Philippians were in poverty, but they were blessed. They had a God that supplied every need that they had according to his riches and glory. And by the way, I want to I tell you that, that God's riches and glory, that, that is a bank account that no matter how big the withdrawal is, God can withdraw all the cattle on a thousand hills, and he's not diminished. He can withdraw enough to pay your bills, and he's not diminished an iota. God's account never runs dry. We serve a God that has never in his life experienced lack. We serve a God that owes no man nothing. We serve a God who is wealthy. We serve a God of abundance. 
This Proverb, Proverb 11, 24, it speaks to us. It tells us that you can't be a hoarder and prosper. It, un, it under, underscores the biblical principle that the liberal soul shall be made fat. Give and give and give and prosper. Greedy people have no instinct for reciprocity. No instinct towards giving. A pastor taught me a principle years ago. We, we were thinking about putting somebody in leadership, and I had pause, so I called an overseer to get his input. And he asked me the question. He said, do they tithe? And I said, they don't tithe. They don't believe in tithing. He said, do, do they give? And I said, really no. And he said, there's, there, there's a picture for you. There's something you need. This is an old seasoned ministry. He said, there, there's something you need to understand. Usually people that don't tithe just don't believe in giving, period. They'll drop a little trinket in here and there, but they're not givers. They're not known to be generous people. Their family probably knows them to be stingy. It's probably their nature. That, that was an eye-opening lesson coming from, from that seasoned minister, but really, it's, it's the truth. Greedy people have no instinct for reciprocity. We, how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea? You know why it's called the Dead Sea? Because the river flows into it, and there's no outlet. Everything that comes into the Dead Sea stays in the Dead Sea, and that's why it's called the Dead Sea. If you live a life where everything that comes to you stays with you, you are spiritually dead. I've got an old Bible from my Bible college days. In, in, in one of the passages, it's, it's a wide margin Bible. In, in one of the passages, I, I flip through that every once in a while just to, rem to remember the things that I've learned. Remember those lessons that I got back in Bible college. I flipped through it. But in this margin, it, it, in a passage next to giving, it says that my giving is a gauge. I scribbled that in the notes as a reminder to myself. Check your giving. Are you living a generous life? Because that's a gauge, and it shows me where I am spiritually. When I am not connected and in tune with God, I become stingy. It's just true. I become dead, stagnant, right? The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because everything comes into it, but there is no flow out of it. God wants us to, to receive and to give, to receive. This is this thing of reciprocity that I'm talking about, this flow, this river that God wants us to, to, to live in and to experience. So let, let's wrap up. I want, I want to summarize here. I, I believe this with everything that's on the inside of me. There is a place that we can go in Jesus where our aspiration is no longer about what we can have, but rather how much of ourselves we can give. And man, do we need to tap into this in the American church? Everything about American Christianity, it's, it's based on a consumer's mentality. I'm going to go to church for what I can get out of it. How good is the preaching? How does the worship make me feel? What, what kind of programs do they have to offer for my benefit? That's the way we church shop. We need to turn that idea on its head. I, I want to go and be a part of a church where I can contribute. Amen. It's not about what I can get out of it as much as it is what I can put into it. Where, where can I serve? How can I help somebody? How can I get connected? How can we can reach a community? How can we give and live a life of sacrifice? You've got to come to understand that that is a place of blessing, of flourishing. This mentality of give me, give me, give me, consume, and eating upon my lusts, it's not fulfilling. It's not life-giving. We are a dead sea if that's the way we're living. But when we learn to release, it's life-giving. Amen? I want to take one look. I've got two more, two more verses Three more verses. Can I have four more verses? Five. Anybody give me six? <laughs> I got three more verses here. Paul writes in Corinthians, he says, don't be, and this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. And I put that into this because really that's the theme of Philippians. 
That's what Philippians is all about. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says it this way. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Are you here this morning for what you can get from God? And listen, we're all there. I have times of need where I've got to come and throw myself at the foot of Jesus and get everything that I can get. We all have those seasons in life. But we, we've got to learn not to just come and take, but to give. Listen, every, every Christian, if you're, if you're going to live a healthy walk before the Lord, every Christian needs to have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. Where are you giving it away? Yeah, if you need something, come and receive it. If you need ministry, come and receive it. But begin to turn and say, you know what? God has given me so much, and I'm full. I came weak and broken, but he has healed me. He has strengthened me. He has filled me up. And now it is time for me to begin to give. And you know what? I, I found out that those are actually the times when we get the most. I give you this example. People say all the time, well, uh, you know, we're moving on to another church because I'm just not getting fed. <laughs> Don't come to get fed. Come to feed. Amen. And look, the Word should feed us. The Word every Sunday should nourish us. It should build us up. But I think there's a whole lot of stingy in that statement. Yes, we're leaving because we're not getting fed. Feed others. And you know what I found? When you start feeding other people, God himself will feed you. The Philippians had lack. The Philippians had needs. But they gave. They were generous. And God supplied their need. That's the reality. Last verse is Philippians 4.19. The promise of this book. Stop fighting. Stop being greedy. Stop trying to advance your own agenda. Stop trying to get your needs met. Don't be selfish. Humble yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Forget about your needs and serve someone else's. In Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all of your needs. You won't have to worry about that need for affirmation in your soul because God himself will affirm you. You you won't worry about that gap that's in there, the lack of peace, the lack of joy that's in you, because if you'll just start serving and pouring out, God will fill you up. That's the theme of this book. I want to be vulnerable for just a second. I want to just share a story. It wasn't in my notes, and it was in the altar. The Lord just said, share this. So we've been here, my wife and I have been here for two and a half, coming up on two and a half years. For the first time, our church is in a pinch. We've had for a good while now more going out than what's coming in. Just to, and we've cut back bare bone. We've come down to paying for the bare necessities here at our church. This past week, we had our board meeting, and it said, they said, you know what, Pastor, I got, th- things are not, not looking good. You think you can go take a pay cut this week? And I said, Yes. We'll do it. So this paycheck this week was $500 short. You know, we walked into the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and we started to worship. And I could sense that the Holy Spirit was settling in over our group. And we got to the end of our choruses, and people were worshiping. I forgot the song, but it was something about, Come Holy Spirit, you're welcomed here, or something like that. It was a Welsh version. 
that none of us Americans knew. But I could really sense the presence of God there. And I, I, had a, I always go to those prayer meetings with an agenda. We're going to pray for these certain things. And I felt like this agenda is no good. I have nothing to say. I just want to minister to the Lord. So I just got up in front of everybody and said, hey, let's just minister to the Lord. And we ended up spending the next 30 or 40 minutes doing that. And during that time, I got down on my face. And God began to minister to me. God began to encourage me. He shared all kinds of amazing things with me. Just encouragement from the Lord. Have you ever been in the presence of the Lord where he just encouraged you? He said, he said a lot to me. I'm not going to tell you all of it. I've shared only with my wife all of it. But here's one thing he said about my income. He said, don't flinch. Don't blink. I've got you. I made the determination, and I talked to my wife about this, that just because my pay was short, my tithe's not going to be short. I'm going to tithe what I should be tithing. Made that determination. As soon as we had that discussion with our board, I made that determination. God said, don't flinch, don't blink. I've got you. That prayer meeting was probably the longest one we've had. I tried to dismiss about four times. And people kept, hey, let's talk about this. Let's pray for this. We ended up praying for another 45 minutes probably, 45 minutes longer than normal. We, we left. And when we walked out, we were here in the foyer. And somebody put a check in my hand that they had written before they left their house for 500 bucks with my name on it. I don't say that to say if you give X amount of dollars, God's going to give you X amount of dollars. If you give this, you're going to get healed. I don't believe that. But I do believe in reciprocity. I believe the liberal soul will be made fat. When we put our others' needs and we put God's kingdom first, he'll always take care of us. Always. David made a statement. He said, I was young, and now I'm old. And I'm kind of getting there. I'm 47. David said, I'm young, and now I'm old. I was young, and now I'm old. He said, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, and I have never seen God's children begging for bread. Amen? I'm just encouraging. Get in the flow. There's an economy. God has an economy. Get into it. Tithe. Give offerings. Give to missions. Give to special uh, projects that we may have around here. But give at work. Give to your family. Give to your children. May your children, may you leave a legacy for your children that they would say, my mom and my dad were generous. May your grandchildren say, my grandparents were generous. May your coworkers and your boss say, that person has a generous disposition. It's a blessed way to live. It's the only way to live. When you're clinging and holding, you are ripping yourself off. You know, the Bible says this, when you give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. How many of you want to loan Jesus some money? So I'm going to tell you what, when you give to Jesus, he gives back more than you can. Listen, Bitcoin is not looking like such a wise investment. It's a third of what it was. There was an NFL player, I read this this week, he signed his, his signing bonus. was like, I think 18 or 24, I think, yeah, 20, it was 24 million in Bitcoin. That was one year ago, and today that's only worth 8 million Bitcoin. Again, God's kingdom is never diminished. It's abounding. It's overflowing. It's exceedingly and abundantly above anything that we can ask. That is God's economy. That's the economy I want to participate in. I want you to participate in because there is no lack in God's economy. Distress comes 
times of lack may come to your life, but God will always take care of his children. Let's stand together. Father, I just pray right now over Return Church. I pray for the people in the sound of my voice. I pray for everyone watching online. Father, I pray that you would create in us a generous disposition. Father, may we be as, this is not time for us as a church to shrink back. May we be known as a generous church. May we be known as givers. Every one of us, everywhere that we go, all throughout this community, all through the metro, all through Indiana and Kentucky and across the land, let us become known as a generous people. Lord, to your praise and to your glory, may we be known as a generous people. Father, I thank you for it. I give you praise for it. I honor you. Amen. The story just popped into my head as I was praying. You guys probably remember Pastor Matt Bell. He's the guy that came a while back last year. He preached on the supremacy of Christ. He pastors Destiny Church in San Antonio. That was founded by his great-grandfather, actually. There's a story coming from the time of his grandfather's leadership of that church. His grandfather was John Bell. John Bell would come to the elders, and he would say, we don't quite have enough to pay the bills this month. What are we going to do? And there was an elder named Van Pinner. He's gone to be with the Lord, or the bell's gone to be with the Lord, in fact. But Van Pinner, whenever, every, every time John Bell brought that question to the, to the elders, the elders of the church, Van, Van would say to those elders, he said, it's time to take a missions offering. It's time to take a missions offering. That church in its, in its history has given tens of millions of dollars to missions. During Pastor John Bell's tenure, there was a struggle to pay the bills, but he stayed faithful. He, he never one time dropped any commitment to any missionary, and God, they never missed a bill. God took care of them. And Van Pinner would say, we don't have enough money, time to take a missions offering and they'd send the check away to the missionary. You know where that church is at today? Debt-free. They have an auditorium that'll seat a thousand people. They have a, a, a big school campus at the top of the hill. They've got all their properties paid for. And it's a church that right now is giving over $500,000 annually to missions. Why? Because God blesses a liberal soul. If we're faithful to give, we will never be in want. God always takes care of his people. Amen. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, and you'd like to have a relationship with him, I'm going to dismiss, but I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'd love to meet you here in the altar. I'd love to pray with you. If you have any need in your life, if you need prayer for anything, if you're battling anxiety, fear, worry, whatever it is, sickness in your bodies, if there's any need in your life, I'm going to invite you to come. I'm going to dismiss our church. God bless each and every one of you. I would love for you to be here on Wednesday night for prayer back in the chapel in the back corner. You guys have a great week. We love each and every one of you. Amen.